Well, if you've uh, engaged with social media uh, over the last months, uh, I'm pretty confident that you'll have been absolutely bombarded with any number of pictures of your friends, family, chance acquaintances enjoying themselves in all manner of exotic locations. In fact, let's just put this to the test. Hands up if you've seen a picture of someone else's holiday in the last few weeks and you've wished you were there. Okay, a number of people in the room. Now, in the same way as you may have gazed longingly at those pictures with a degree of envy, I think there are times when we see certain character traits or states of mind in people around us or maybe promised to us in the Bible, things like joy or contentment or peace or generosity or wisdom or hope, And we think, I wish I was there. I wish I could have that in my life. I wish I was more like that. And so what we're doing over the summer is looking pretty much at how to get to the place that we'd really like to be in our Christian lives. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is doubt. Now, by the slightly shocked expressions, I probably just need to take a step back and give a little bit of explanation because, again, if I was to ask for a bit of audience participation, if I was going to ask for a show of hands, all those in the room who just wished they had more doubt in their lives, uh, I'm guessing there wouldn't be a whole lot of response. But here's the thing. I think if we're willing to be honest, I reckon all of us experience doubts about our faith at some point. And that can be a big problem to us. You see, we tend to see doubt, don't we, as a bad thing, as a negative thing. And because we don't want people to judge us or think badly about us, sadly, the church doesn't often feel like a safe place where we can come along and express our doubts. And we don't tend to get a whole lot of help from the world around us either. Because I think it's fair to say most secular people believe that constant doubt and deep scepticism is really the only sophisticated and intellectually mature position to hold. And so to talk to people outside the church about our doubts is likely to merely reinforce them. It's unlikely to help us actually work through them. What I want to try and show you today is that the Bible doesn't look at doubt anywhere near as positively or as negatively as all that. The Bible doesn't see it as positively as a lot of secular people do or as negatively as a lot of religious people do. Actually, doubt isn't quite so simplistic. It's not all good, it's not all bad. And only when you begin to see it in a balanced way can doubt actually be something through which we can make some progress. And so, just to tip you off, I'm not going to stand at the front this morning and paint you this glorious picture of a blissful, doubt-free existence. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to help you see a way to work through doubt to hopefully a place of slightly stronger faith. Now, in order to do that, We're going to look at Psalm 73. It's a very famous passage, an incredibly famous psalm. It's the case study of a guy called Asaph. And as we're going to see today, Asaph is filled with doubt, not only about God, but fundamentally about his faith. And we're going to read what he says and hopefully learn from Asaph 
how to move through doubts to a higher level of faith. We're not going to read the entire psalm, just uh, kind of different blocks of it, starting in verse 1. Asaph says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. And just to pause there, I don't know what you reckon, but I think that's a pretty graphic image of what doubt is like. It's like when you're losing your footing, when your feet are slipping, for a moment you've lost your balance. When you've lost your balance, you're experiencing this kind of disorientation, this confusion. It's what doubt is. Spiritually, it's this kind of mental disorientation. You lose the certainty you might have had before. He goes on, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Down to verse 12. I mean, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Verse 16. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Truly you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. It's like you've got all this doubt that by the end of this psalm leads to a much higher level of faith and confidence in God. And perhaps one of the most famous affirmations in the whole Bible. Verse 26, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. In other words, there's been quite a lot of progress through this psalm. Now this idea of doubt and of questioning leading to some kind of progress, it's certainly not unique to the Bible. A guy called Francis Bacon, uh, one of the first modern scientists a couple of centuries back, basically he said, if you begin with certainties, you'll end in doubts. If you begin with doubts, you end in certainty. I think what he's saying is, if you just accept willy-nilly everything that's told you, you'll never grow, you'll never develop, you'll, you'll never grow to new realms of understanding if you never probe and push and ask questions. If you start with certainties, you'll find you just don't learn very much. And if you start with doubts, asking questions, pushing back against things, that's the way you tend to learn more. That's certainly the case spiritually. I mean, what's the most famous place in the Bible that talks about doubt? Maybe I should rephrase it. Who's the, perhaps, the most famous character in the Bible known for his doubting? Thomas. 
Thomas uh, is the one. Uh, Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, if you remember, after the death of Jesus, that there was this meeting of the disciples and the resurrected Jesus appears in the meeting and proves to them all he's alive. Problem is, for some reason, Thomas missed the meeting. And Thomas later hears all the disciples saying, Jesus, he's alive! We saw him with our own eyes. Thomas says, I don't believe it for one moment. I'm not going to believe it unless he appears to me as well. And I not only see him, but I see the nail prints in his hands. That won't even be enough for me. I actually want to physically put my fingers inside the holes. What does Jesus do? Jesus appears to Thomas It doesn't say, Thomas, why did you question me? The first thing he says is, okay, you wanted to see my hands. You wanted the nail prints. Here they are. Put put your fingers in if you want to. And Thomas responds with the great confession, which is very much the climax of the whole book of John. He says, my Lord and my God. No other place in the book of John where anyone looks right at Jesus in the eyes and says, you're God. In other words, this expression of doubt brings Jesus right into Thomas' life, leads him to a higher level of faith than he would ever have had if he hadn't asked the question. See, on the one hand, Jesus doesn't say, how dare you question me? He actually steps down, humbles himself, gives Thomas what he asked for. On the other hand, He ends up by saying, so Thomas, stop doubting. Start believing. You know, this is where the Bible shows us an attitude towards doubt that neither religious people nor secular people tend to have. It's not nearly as bad as a lot of religious people say it is. It's not nearly as good as a lot of secular people say it is. Jesus says, look, don't just settle in your doubt. Let the doubt drive you to something else. At the same time, Jesus doesn't just dismiss the doubts. He faces up to them. So all that being said, let's return to Psalm 73. Let's look a little more closely at Asaph's experience. I want us to look at doubt in this psalm under two main headings. First of all, what causes it? Secondly, what transforms it? First up then, what causes this man's doubt? Two things I think he points out in this psalm. First of all, he says, I saw something. Secondly, he experienced something. So what did he see? Well, verses 1 to 3, they they put in a nutshell. He says, God is good to those whose hearts are pure. It doesn't mean those people who are completely and utterly sinless. No, it means people who are committed to God, part of the community of God. So he starts off with good theology. He says, God's a good God and he cares for his people. But down in verse 3, it says, I saw people prosper despite their wickedness. Then in the passage we didn't look at, verses 4 to 11, he says, they seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? So what Asaph sees is, That in this world, supposedly under the rule of a good God, people who merely promote themselves and manipulate or exploit others, they're having this great life. And he's bothered by it. He says, why would a supposedly good God 
who's in charge of the world allow that kind of injustice? And I think probably all of us can relate to this. Whether it's an earthquake in Italy or another suicide bomb in Turkey or a cancer diagnosis in a loved one. I think all of us at times see things happening in the world around us that can cause us in some way to doubt God. So that's the first thing. But it's not just an intellectual problem. It's not just that Asaph sees something. No, he also experiences something. What's the experience? Well, in verses 13 to 14, he says, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. He's saying, look, I tried desperately hard to live right. My understanding was that God cares for the pure in heart. So I've tried as hard as I can to keep my heart pure. But it all seems to be in vain. Because all day long, I'm being afflicted with pain. Finally says in verse 16, so I try to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. In other words, he's not just having this kind of intellectual problem out there somewhere, he's having a personal experience. There's trouble and pain in his own life that is shaping what he thinks and how he feels. And that personal experience means things he believed with his mind are now not very real in his heart. It's causing him to doubt the love and the goodness of God to himself. Now look, the exact details, they may be different for us. But pretty much all of our doubts are going to be the product of a combination, yes, of our thinking and our reasoning and logic and perhaps intellectual thought, as well as our own personal situation and our own personal experience. So on the one hand, your doubts aren't just from your thinking. They're not just intellectual. They're often shaped by your experience. They're often shaped by your circumstances and by the environment you find yourself in and perhaps by the beliefs and the opinions of the people around you. But on the other hand, you do still have to think if you're going to process the doubts. So please, engage your brain think deeply, ask questions, push back on what you hear, but also be honest enough to admit that what you think is often influenced in some way by your own personal experiences. So look very briefly at some of the causes of doubt. For the rest of our time, I want us to home in on what transforms doubt. So I don't want you just remaining in doubt. I don't want to reinforce your doubts or maybe create some new doubts for you this morning. Hopefully you'll find your doubt transformed or at least starting on a journey of transformation in all of this. So how does the doubting become something the writer of this psalm doesn't get stuck in but something he uses to move to a whole new level of faith? Well three things shouldn't completely surprise you since we've just talked about a bit of this, but I want us to look a bit more at experience. I want us to look a bit more at thinking. And then finally, the importance of getting an enlarged view of God. First of all, experience. Now, we read through the psalm. Do you remember where in the psalm the change 
happens. Verses 1 to 16, Asaph is pretty oppressed, pretty down. I tried to understand all this. It troubled me deeply. Until verse 17, where he says, then. That's the turning point. That's the hinge. Things start to turn around right there. Now what happens? What's the first thing he does? Verse 17, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Now just to explain, it's not like he was walking along the road one day, he saw one of those kind of big old cathedrals, noticed the door was slightly ajar and so wandered in and saw it as just this beautiful sanctuary inside and sat down and just sort of meditated, pondered and reflected in the silence. I don't think that's what he's talking about. You know why? Because the only sanctuary back then would have been the temple. And what happened in the temple was worship. It's like he's putting himself intentionally in a place of worship. He's putting himself in a place where he could hear people singing. He heard the word of God sung. He heard the scriptures being taught. He was surrounded by other believers. Actually, you say, well, that's a strange thing to do. No, that's not a strange thing. Here's why. If you accept that your doubts didn't come solely through thinking, then you're not going to get through your doubts solely through thinking. If your doubts came to some extent because you're in social and personal locations where God seemed less real to you, it's only fair to level the playing field a bit and go to some place where God seems more real. Go to a place where people believe in him. Go to a place where people are talking about him. Go to a place where there is teaching from his word. At the very least, pray. Again, maybe you're thinking, well, if you've got doubts about God, how can you pray to him? Well, you know, over the years, I've had a lot of people, more people than you would believe, who have had doubts about me. And they came and talked to me about it. And more often than not, it helped the relationship. You know, I'd much rather you didn't sit around behind my back thinking about, what do I think Jonathan's like? Maybe he's like this, maybe he's like that. Well, come and ask me. Spend time with me. Let's talk about it. In the same way, if you drifted away from belief through a combination of thinking and experience, why shouldn't you come back to belief through a combination of just thinking but also experience? Asaph didn't just go off and think. He went into the sanctuary. So that's the first thing. He's willing to put himself in this experiential location where God seemed real to him. And it cleared his mind. He says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God. I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Second thing is he does do some thinking. It starts with Asaph being willing to admit some of his bad motives. Although he rants about all of the injustice he sees in the world around him, he also has the honesty and the self-awareness to face up to the real issue. Verse 2, but as for me, I almost lost my footing, my feet were slipping and I was almost gone. Why? Because I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. So this isn't just an intellectual problem. It's like, wait a minute, I kept my heart pure, and I deserve what they've got. I'm a little resentful here because I'd like to have the power and the wealth that they have. I envy what they have. There's jealousy here. See how he's not simply having this intellectual issue. 
It's not completely objective. His motives are involved. There's a philosophy professor, without wishing to go all highbrow on you, called Thomas Nagel, who wrote a book called The Last Word. And though he's a convinced atheist and actually argues very eloquently for his position, nevertheless, in his book, he admits, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief, it's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I do not want the universe to be like that. And then he adds in a small footnote, I am curious, however, whether there is anyone who is genuinely indifferent as to whether there is a God. He's talking to atheists who say, the only reason I'm an atheist is I looked at all the evidence very objectively and decided the evidence suggested there was no God. He says, listen, no one's as objective about this as that. Sure, sure, you can say, well, Christians, they're people who want to believe in an afterlife. They want to believe they trust in God. They're going to live forever with all of their loved ones. You can say that. But atheists know if there is a God, suddenly they can't live the way they want to live. And he says, if I'm being honest, I don't want the universe to be like that. I don't want to have those kinds of limitations on my freedom. Therefore, he concludes, no one's objective. You have a lot of reasons for not wanting God to exist, and you may have some reasons for wanting him to exist, but admit it, face up to it. That kind of intellectual honesty, I think, is absolutely crucial. Start off by admitting your motives. Admit you're not really that objective. doesn't mean you won't still land where you were before, but you should, at the very least, recognize that. Notice also how the writer of this psalm comes to recognize the deep faith that's actually hidden in all doubt. Remember he says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Well, here's the main thing he saw. Verse 18, truly you put them on a slippery path. Now, we've already seen, haven't we, how he talks about his own feet slipping. It's like where your foot is, is where you've chosen to put your faith. It's the thing you have your faith in. And so when your foot slips, it means you're having trouble keeping your face. He turns around and he says, now wait a minute, their foot is somewhere as well. They have faith in something too. And where their faith is, is even more precarious than where my faith is. See, these people who are living very selfishly, who are being cruel and exploiting people, they're doing it on the basis of a view of God. Remember verse 5, what does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? In other words, they are assuming that either God isn't there, or if He is, He simply doesn't care. At the end of the day, they are basing their lives on a view of God they cannot prove. Now, if you're assuming in the way you live a view of God that you can't prove, what is that? It's a kind of faith. You see, if you believe in God, it is a step of faith. But if you don't believe in God, or you live as if God is not there, that is also a step of faith. In fact, that's a huge step of faith. It's like you're basing your life, no matter how you live, on a view of God you ultimately can't prove. So Asaph starts by admitting his bad motives. Then he wakes up to the fact that everybody ultimately is in some way living by faith. Then just notice what he says at the end. 
Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Just to explain, a portion is your inheritance, it's your wealth, it's your security. And what he's doing here, he's comparing his portion to theirs. See, if God's your portion, if God's the one you're living for, no one ultimately can snatch that away from you. But if wealth is what you're living for, or if power is what you're living for, like these people that he was envying so much, that can be taken away in a second. It's like these people, they've put their faith in power, in money, in accomplishment, perhaps in their appearance. They've put their faith, their feet, on something that could be taken away from them forever, just like that. And he's thinking, wait a minute, here I am getting filled with doubts, yet what's the alternative? For me to live like them would mean I'd have to put my faith in their not being a God, which I can't prove. And I'd have to put my hope in these things that could be snatched away from me forever in an instant. You know what? They are in a way more slippery place than I am. In the heart of his doubt, he was beginning to think, maybe I'll live like those other people instead of the way I have been living. But he stops and reflects and thinks, actually, that would take an enormous amount of faith. And so he concludes, no, 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 the faith I have is better. So what transforms his doubt? First of all, experience. Then thinking it through honestly. And then finally, he expands his view. Asaph doesn't just experience, doesn't just think. He expands his view of God. Let me try and illustrate this for you. Generally speaking, little children, as they grow up, have a complete trust of adults because the only adults in their lives are their parents and perhaps a few of their parents' friends that they've introduced to their children. And so kids kind of expect all adults to behave in the way they've seen modelled by the small group of adults they've ever interacted with or spent time with. But at some point, children will see an adult doing something they never thought in a million years adults would do. At which point, as a parent, you have to sit down with your child and explain. You have to say, look, your theory of life, your paradigm of human nature is small. You're four and you're a child genius if you understand terms like paradigm and all of that. But basically, your, your framework for understanding how life works needs to change as you grow up. It, you didn't think adults could act like that, but adults really can. What's happening is children, they're going through a paradigm shift, a change in the way they view the world. It's like their theory of life was too small to handle the reality. Now, here's perhaps the most important thing some of you are going to take away from this talk. At the point where doubt comes into your life, I want you to consider that it could possibly be because your understanding of God is too small to handle the reality. And so the way 
you get through seasons of doubt isn't simply just to try and go back to the way you believed before, and if that doesn't work, ultimately just jack it all in. Now, what you need more than anything else is to somehow, in some way, get a bigger view of God. And that's exactly what Asaph gets here in verses 21 to 23. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. Let me give you two quick stories before we start to wrap this up. Many years ago when I was growing up, I used to live close to a farm. And once a year there'd be this almighty commotion when the farmer would take the sheep one by one and forcibly dip them into this huge vat of insecticide. It's very hard on the sheep because you kind of had to grab them by the feet up here and the hind legs as well and just immerse them and hold them down, submerged under this stuff they didn't want to be in for what seemed like 15 seconds. Even though it was exactly what the sheep needed, none of them liked it and they try and kick out against the farmer. Now, I think God does the equivalent of that to us a lot. He gives us what we really needed, even though we may not know it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Maybe not until after we're gone. And that's what finally dawns on Asaph in this psalm. You think, wait a minute, if I really believe in a God who created the world, of course he's going to be able to let things happen to me that I can't always understand. How dare I think that somehow everything has to happen just the way I think or I can explain. It's like he realizes I'm the equivalent of a sheep. I'm like this senseless animal and I'm not trusting my master. Another story. A number of years back, I saw a kitten had fallen into a stream and would certainly have drowned if it wasn't for this boy who kind of boldly strode into the stream, into the water, pulled the kitten out and rescued it. But as he was pulling the kitten out, the kitten, of course, was very scared and traumatized by the whole experience. It was kind of biting and scratching the hand of this boy who was his savior until the boy's hand was bleeding. What Asaph says is my heart was bitter. I was foolish and ignorant. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You see how his view of God is getting bigger and at the same time more tender. He says, you've never given up on me. You're always with me. You're still holding me by my right hand, in spite of how stupid I've been, in spite of how I've bitten and scratched you and lashed out against you. You've continued to love me and be faithful to me. It's like his view of God has grown bigger and more tender. And as a result, he can handle the life he sees around him. Here's what I want to ask you, though. How did that happen? How can he be sure that in spite of the fact he'd been so foolish and ignorant towards God, in spite of the fact he's been questioning him and treating God in this way, how can he be sure at the end of the day that God is still with him? 
How can it be sure that God's forgiven him? How can it be sure that God has never let him go? Is it just wishful thinking? Well, I don't think he can be sure, except that he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this part of the Bible. It's like divine revelation. He just knows it and it comes from God. How can you and I know it to be true today? Why wouldn't God, when we act like this, and we do act like this at times, well, why wouldn't God just say, that's it, you've blown it, there's no way back for someone like you, it's over. How do we know God hasn't let us go and will not let us go? I'll tell you how. We don't have the, the divine revelation that Asaph had here, but we have the New Testament. Here's what we see in the New Testament. When Jesus was on the cross... Remember how he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know what he was saying? What he was saying was, Father, in this moment, I can't feel your hands. See, all of Jesus' life, was utterly different than the rest of us. He was always faithful to his Father. He always loved his Father. He was the one person who deserved to have his Heavenly Father hold him by the hands. But at the end of his life, God the Father let him go. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus was getting what you and I deserve. He was losing the Father's hand so you and I can know if we believe in Jesus and are accepted by God the Father because what Jesus has done, he will never, ever, ever let us go. In other words, we today can have a bigger view of God even than Asaph had. He had no idea God would be so great as to actually come to earth and become a human being and go to the cross and do this for us. We have a bigger view of God and a more loving view of God than he ever had. Therefore, how much more should we be able to have a large view of God that handles life? How much more than Asaph should we be able to say what he says at the very end? Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever.